Welcome to my podcast, Two Whiskies and a Cigar. I'm your host, Frankie Sabini. This podcast's sole purpose is to bring you knowledge, motivation and help within your chosen industry or sport. I'll be sitting down each week to talk to people who have either achieved a high level of success in business or sport and individuals who have amazing skills and experiences that the world needs to hear. My aim is to help as many people as I can by gaining insights from industry leaders and athletes. So please, pour yourself a whiskey, light a cigar, sit back and enjoy. So, today we have Steve Kunis, author, screenplay and one of Hollywood's most successful script doctors. Steve had a great career until the work dried up, prompting Steve to reevaluate his life and work, leading to his 2021 TEDx talk, Square One at 60, after his newfound success on the comedy series, Over My Dead Body. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, good. I, uh, I said I really appreciate you coming on. Um, so you, you reached out to me and it was a, a time where I was sort of wondering if what I'm doing is right. So for me, it really was appreciated uh, and your kind words as well. So I'm really excited about this one. Um, obviously, I've done my, my bit of research on you as well. But for our listeners, are you all right just sort of starting off uh, from the beginning and how you got into uh, the, the, the script writing world, basically? Okay, well, what I what I did, first of all, the reason uh, I reached out to you is because I, I, I hear there are close to 2 million podcasts in the world. And I personally believe that the title of your show, Two Whiskeys and a Cigar, is the single best title I have heard ever of a podcast. <laughs> so uh, there, there, there's, there's no way I couldn't, you know, appear on this show. Do you like whiskeys um, and cigars? Yeah, that's right. But well, here's what I did. Uh, when, I, when I was a kid, I grew up in suburban Pennsylvania uh, in the United States. And... I would always, I don't know why, but at the end of anything I watched, I would always look at the credits and I would see the names on the credits. And I I would wonder like, who are these people and how did they get to work on this show? And most people, once the credits start, they change the channel or in the movie theater, they, they, they get up and they leave. It, it, to me, um, that that almost became an obsession. I go, are these are these real people? And I would see the same names sometimes on various shows, or one person, you know, moved from one show. Oh, now his name's on a movie, whatever. And that's what I think drove me to maybe investigate the business. I, I loved writing. I worked at my high school, my little high school radio station. Uh, that, that we had that was only broadcast to the cafeteria, and <laughs> you know, and I, and I thought, well, the one thing they have in common, the, these people, they all seem to live in California, and I thought, well, you know, maybe when I get older, you know, I'll go to college. I ended up going to NYU, um, but I, I thought maybe I will someday. Put a face to a name, even if it's just a cameraman. I just wanted to, you know, see see this become a reality. This this credit, and 
what I ended up doing was when I was in New York, I started writing magazine articles, just started submitting comedy pieces to different magazines. And I was prolific and tenacious. And I actually got into uh, a few magazines. Uh, I think one I was paid $25 and another I was paid like, you know, $75, things like that. But I, I kept at it. And I also kept in touch with my school, even after I had graduated, I would go to these seminars and, and they would have some pretty well-known people that would show up at, at seminars. One of them was William Goldman, who was a very, very famous uh, screenwriter who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, among other things. And I asked him the same question that you just asked me. I said, how, how do you get, you know, what, what is it that puts somebody ahead? What, how do you do? And he told me, so um, it's really not my secret, but it came from Bill Goldman. Uh, he said it has to do with writing a one-page perfect letter. And I said, how's that? He, his point was, who would write a letter to the chairman of uh, General Motors or the head of AT&T or, or now like the head of AOL or Google? You, you're not going to write a letter to the chairman of Google. He's not going to read it. I have news for you. If it's the right letter, they will. What I did, and he told me there, there's a structure to the perfect letter. First, you talk about them. You're, you know, you say, I'm, I'm a student. I'm doing the reason I'm writing to you. And you, you, you talk about them, what they've done and, and, and why that impresses you. And then what you're looking to do. And a, a, if they don't answer it personally, they will refer it to somebody and you won't get a form letter back. Um, so what I, what I did was I took the people that meant something to me, at least through their work. And I also took some of the people that I've seen their names on television. Uh, just like I, I said, uh, among the credits, I tracked, it's not hard to track them down. You can, if they're working on a show, you write to them care of the show at the studio where they do the show. I think I got about a 99% response rate. I wrote to Grant Tinker, who was the chairman of NBC, and got a very lovely personal signed letter back. Uh, looking forward to you, you know, coming out here and I, I'll look for your name. And it wasn't like he was giving me a job. He's the head of NBC. But, not, you know, I'm just starting out. One of the letters I wrote was to Norman Lear. Norman Lear is the most famous producer in television history in America. He's still alive. He's 100 years old. Yeah. He did. He, he just, uh, some few, not a few years back, he got the Kennedy Center honor uh, among a zillion other awards he's gotten. Uh, he produced a show called All in the Family, which was actually based on a British series called Till Death Do Us Part. And that is that might be the most famous comedy in American history. And he picked up the phone and responded to my letter, flew me to Los Angeles at the age of 26, put me under contract um, with his co company as an apprentice writer. I stayed with him for a few years until he sold his company and essentially retired. It was because it was because of writing letters, not crazy letters, not like, oh, why I'm so great. It had, it's about why they're so great.
Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it's, and it's not a kiss-ass letter. It's really why you, you have to give thought to who you contact. You just don't send out a thousand letters to everybody that's like you got off of some directory. But it has to do with, a, you know, how, how they, their work meant something to you. You're just starting out. And I think I might have even mentioned that Bill Goldman suggests that I go this route and, and write to people that mattered most. And uh, so that that may have helped. Uh, not that he was recommending me, but that's that's what I did. And so I get out to California, and I'm in a studio, and I'm looking around at the crew, and I see like, oh, there's the sound guy, there, there's there's the assistant cameraman, and I recognize their name from the credits that I watched when I was 15 years old. Or, you know, and I tell them, I say, you know, I've seen your name so many times and I always want, and, and I ended up meeting a, a good, uh, you know, many people of, of, you know, that I had, that I had seen. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am still, I'm 66 years old right now. I'm still fascinated by seeing a name and then meeting the person. It must, uh, it must know, be so surreal as well. So you you fly out at, at 26 and you start meeting these guys you you know the names of. Like what, uh, how do you feel in that moment? You're in that room of names you know, but you, you never probably thought you were going to meet. Um, it, it's it's what you say. It's surreal. It's, it's like, oh, but it also made it, I, I was comfortable with it. I go, oh, so this is, this is, um, you're really marrying thought to action. You know, like right right now, this exists in my head. This is a dream. You know, I, I enjoy television comedy. And now I'm standing on the set of The Love Boat and they're filming the show that I wrote. And I, it's like, it, it is still, there's still a part that's like, you're at the party, but then you're also looking at the window at the people at the party. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not, you're, 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 you're very self-aware that, wow, I'm doing this thing I planned, you know, 3000 miles away, sitting in my room in high school. And now here, you know, here I am. And I think the only person that would understand that is somebody that has, you know, has done something like that. Um, doesn't have to be an entertainment. It could be in, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, as I said before we we started this, I just find, I just got a short scripts commissions, um, and even that was was thrill. So <clears throat> it's uh, without going into too much detail, but it's about the mental and uh, mental and mental health effects on your brain through ice hockey. So I used to be a professional ice hockey player. Uh, one of my best friends who's a producer is a was an ice hockey player as well. So we're trying to show the CTE effects. And, and everything like that. So we wrote this, uh, well, I wrote this short script. Um, and then my friend just just messaged me about a month ago and was like, um, you yeah, know, we've, we've got commissions. We're going to shoot in January. And even that, I was sitting there thinking, wow. like, I've, it's just something I wrote. I was having a glass of whiskey in front of my, my laptop, jotted down a short, uh, like, a, just a short script because my mate said, yeah, just, just whack one down and see what we can do. And literally about three weeks after that, we've, we've been commissioned for it. So, I mean, even that was a surreal feeling for me. So then I can't even imagine being on set on day one of shooting and finally seeing your work come to life. Well, the, the interesting thing is 
you're you're alone in a room, or unless or if you have a writing partner, you know, the two two of you, and you're creating something literally out of nothing. It's you're creating your mind. You have an idea. Well, why don't we try it this way? Why don't we try it that way? You write it down. Okay. It still doesn't seem real, except at least now it's on paper. Mm. Okay. Then you send it to somebody and they say they want to do it. So you have this, this rush of, wow, it's like, it started with a thought here, but here, here's the best part. Well, there's two. Then you go to the set. Let's say I remember one time I wrote I wrote something where uh, they go to a hotel room. It was room 404, right? I I show up on the set for the taping, and there's this this hotel room, and it has the numbers 404 on it. Like like somebody's been hired to make the set that was in my you know in my mind on my dining room table like two months before. Mm. And, and now I'm like, there though, there's room 404. And then there's people, you know, talking, but and they're saying what you wrote. And at, and then it gets even better. Then you go to a bar and you, you tell the bartender, he puts on the show and everybody's sitting there watching the show that's on the bar at the bar. And you're the one, they don't know, you don't go tell but that you wrote it necessarily unless you know the guy or something, but you just sit there and you, and you're watching people watch your television show. And I will, I will never um, get over that. That is a very, you know, uh, a, a very cool thing yeah. to me. Incredible. Cause with, with, right, with, with anything creative, you put yourself out there and you never know how it's going to be perceived and writing's a part of you. So Obviously, it's, it's from your mind, but you could give somebody the same sort of basic storyline. Are two different people to write it, and the, to both stories, both scripts can come out completely different. So, right. what you've jotted down is a reflection of of how your brain works, pretty much. So, I suppose when it gets received well, when you see people enjoying it, it it's kind of a sense of relief. Like I'm not crazy. I actually I know what right. I'm writing about, and it's good that people are enjoying it. Well. You're exactly right. If somebody says to you, look, I want you to, um, you're being hired to write an episode of a particular show. And this is, this is the story we want. Either maybe you came up with it or you're, you're being commissioned to do it. If you were to hire five different people, you'd get the story, you'd get the same plot, the same characters, but um, they would feel different because they would be coming from different, different writers. And uh, so you really do see your stamp when, you, when you're watching it, it. It really does feel like uh, yours. It might feel different to the viewer who sees 22 episodes a year. Um, yeah, they might all be a little bit different as far as the, the, the flavor uh, of them. But <coughs> the... Um, the writer knows the difference, mm. you know, and that's why, and that's why the the key is never. And this is true with any type of writing, and I think it's true with music or you know any type of art. Don't try to be somebody else. Yeah, and we all make that. We've all made that mistake a little. Like you, if you like Ernest Hemingway, oh, I'm going to try to you know not really be him, but you know he's an influence. If if you like Tennessee Williams, you know the, the playwright or or you know, pick your favorite artist. 
um, that that really I believe detracts from who. Just just really the best thing is to be yourself. And there's a little a little secret to making it personal. Um, the writer Kurt Vonnegut, he said. People said to him, "How come your your writing seems like so intimate?" And he said, because I take something that's very emotional, that I have an emotional connection with. And in this case, it was his sister who died in a, a train accident. It was a train crash. It was a weird thing. He ended up raising her kids. And he had a framed picture of, of his sister on his writing desk. And he would look at it and he would pretend when he wrote his books that he was telling the story to his sister. like. You know, so when people would read his his writing, they would say, "It really, it's so personal. I feel like you're talking. I know that like a million people just bought your book, but I feel like you're talking just to me." Somehow, when you are you you, you have an emotion attached to and a focus, it makes it makes your work personal to everybody that reads it. Mm. Even though he's not, even though he's not saying, you know, talking in the first person to his sister, but he's looking at this picture. <coughs> so that um, that's certainly a little a, a device you might so you know, consider employing, or your viewers might you know take into consideration. So, so say um, you you've been hired to write one episode of a series, what's six seasons in. Say so you've got no emotional attachment to that particular story. How do you then find your emotion there? Like, how do you get your well, style across? I, I, I think I think what Vonnegut was saying applies more to your own original yeah. work. It's pretty hard to look at look at a picture of your grandmother, or your sister, and write a TV, you know, a, a silly TV show, especially if, you know, really. Um, so I don't know that that. Uh, yeah. That applies. The hardest thing for writing for a series that's been around for six years is coming up with a story they haven't already done. Um, it really, and that's why these shows, you know, tend tend to get a little worse and worse because they, or they start to regurgitate some of the stuff they've done. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to it's hard to come up with like two hundred episodes. Yeah, I mean you know few shows do it um I, wow so in answer to your question i would just say just uh i don't know become religious and beg god for them to say please help me yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is so you know, just just you know stay true to the characters and be you know throwing a lot of jokes i guess so obviously you you've wrote a lot of tv series <clears throat> and you've also being a script doctor on a lot of films what right. what's the the sort of main it, was it more serious you wanted to get involved in and just fed into films or was it vice like the other way around how did you end up doing both the the series uh television work led to the movie work because a lot of times they will want just some scenes added especially if they're you know some, some lighter lighthearted scenes so if you're a comedy writer they go well what how would you lighten lighten this up or what would you you know uh a lot of writers work on a movie uh, 
very you know few of them are credited compared to the number like Rain Man had eleven writers, and two people got credit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and and the Writers Guild has a strict rule where the first writer uh, almost always gets credit, even if not a word of of his or her work is used. And oftentimes the last writer will get the credit. Uh -huh. Or that's about half the time. The other half is about the first and the second writer. And then the other ones uh, don't get it. They have an arbitration process. Mm. So I, I don't think I have ever seen a movie that was written by, by one person, even if they just credited the one person. It's, there's usually somebody brought in uh, during the production because uh, it might read great. But when you get what they say on the floor, when you go into production in the studio and you actually say the words, it, they might not sound as good as they you know, do in your mind when you read them. So they have a writer there uh, in the studio that is on standby to, to, to make it sound better. Um, okay. And, and I don't even necessarily know if they make it sound better, but they have a writer that that's there. Uh, and that's what I did. I did production rewrites uh, on the motion pictures. So I, I was going to say, it kind of follows on. So how much of, of your original work makes it onto the screen? Like, do you have much say in how much makes it onto screen or, or once you're, you've written, written your work that's no, one in, in the movie business uh there, there's an old joke uh well Hemingway said it he said what he said the way to deal with Hollywood is you go to ca the California state line you throw your book over they throw you a bag of money and then you run away <laughs> he said that's how, that's how much yeah they they almost once you write it they don't really want you even on the set uh, if you're the original it's it's uh it can be insulting, but they don't, uh, you, you don't have, they, it, it's, it's really taken out of your hands. Mm. And, and, and any changes that are made, like, I, I don't think I've ever seen the original writer on the set making changes to their own script. It's like, they, for some reason, they just bring in somebody else. And I always thought they should use the, there should be some rule in the union that you must use the original writer or at least try if they're available. Oh well, yeah, because you would have thought it's, it's again, come from their minds, their their vision. So there right. should be some kind of uh, basis of them being able to have the say before it gets rewritten. Well, it's different with uh, like a playwright. You write a play and you rehearse it on a stage. The playwright is always there and if any changes are made, they can only be made by the playwright. Mm. But in Hollywood, it's almost like that. You know, they go go out of their way to like you know the for, the writer's job is done. I mean, it's it, it's it's ridiculous. Imagine if you're a, a director and you direct a scene and they want to reshoot it. They go, oh, we bring in our 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 reshoot director. <laughs> you would go like, wait, I'm the director. Get out of here. Yeah, you know, they would never do that. But but they they do that with writers, you know. For in in motion pictures, 
in television, mm. completely different. The writers are involved all throughout the process. Oh, okay. So it's, it's weird then how it changes through through film to TV. It, it, it's very different. It's definitely different. Are you seeing a big change in how it's TV shows are being perceived now? Because obviously 10, 15, sort of 20 years ago, TV shows were always secondary to film. But I now feel like TV is now taking over from film. Yeah, well, I think what happened was, and it was inevitable, um, because of the, the streaming, because we, like right now, we're talking on Zoom, because of, of the connectivity that we all have to each other and the devices, the tablets and the phones, and because we have large screen TVs in our homes and the prices of those have dropped. Now they're very affordable uh, and, and we can stream things on demand. Uh, it, it has really changed. Movies have essentially come to television because when a movie is released, it's released in your, unless it's a big movie like Avatar, mm. you know, something that's an, more like an event a high budget event. Uh, most things are just released for the first time on Netflix or Amazon uh, or, or another streaming service uh, right into your home. So even though it's a movie, it's, it's, you, you could consider it television because you're watching it on a screen in your home. And in fact, um, the original movies, let's say for Netflix, in order to get Oscar consideration, they have to appear in a theater first. So they'll release them, they'll run them for like two weeks. And one, in, like at a theater in LA and, and one in New York, maybe one in Chicago, uh, maybe one in London. Um, and then that qualifies. Well, it was, an, it was a movie release first and then it goes to streaming. And that way they can be an, uh, you know, considered for an Academy Award. Otherwise they could only be considered for an Emmy Award. Yeah, and, so, uh, that's that's so that's the little get around. But but for instance, Steven Spielberg just had a movie come out called The Fablemans. It got good reviews, although I think it was about an hour too long. But everybody's gonna say it's great because it's Steven Spielberg. <coughs> and um, he spent about $45 million on it, which is kind of cheap for a Spielberg film, but still it's a lot of money. And so far as of this morning, it's made $7.4 million. So it's been in the theaters for about a month. No one expected this. So in about like next week, it's going to be streamed. It's, it's not going to be in theaters anymore. Mm. Um, however, just watch. When the Oscars come around, it'll probably win Best Picture. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, even though you now it was in the theaters for about a month, so it's uh, it's similar to obviously the Irishman as well. I think that was a Netflix Netflix original, I believe, but they released it to cinema first, I suppose, obviously, right. so they can obviously go for the Academy Award. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's going to change because if your intent is to just stream it, then uh. It kind of muddies the Oscars up a little bit. I, I, I mean, you ask a very good question. If you ask me, it really, it's all television now. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and they have limited series more now. 
13 episodes and that's well it's it's too long to be a movie but it's not a regular you know regularly occurring series mm-hmm. so you, you get a, get a lot of that streaming has really changed that you know between streaming and the pandemic where people couldn't go out uh the movie theater business is in real trouble yeah, I mean, so I again, I'm I'm a I love film. I've been brought up on on films, uh, and I love TV series as well. But I really do think the the move towards more TV series and less in cinema has really killed the film industry. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, um, "I like watching a film on times one point two speed, so they can get through the film faster because the plot lines always like they can still know what's going on." And then my response was, but you wouldn't you wouldn't do that with Shawshank Redemption or or Goodfellas or The Godfather or uh, like films like that where you you want to sit there and intently watch it. But this whole Netflix type um, model what they have now and the with the the Avengers so on, it's action has to be within the first nine pages of the script, otherwise no one wants to watch it kind of thing. And I think it's it's taken away from real storytelling. Well, the real art form of, of what film and TV used to be? Well, I think it, that started with the remote control. What happened was, in the old days, in America anyway, there were three networks. And so you're limited in what you're going to watch. And the family would gather around the television. And they would make a decision. You know, They'd make sure to be there on the right night at the right time. Uh, then they invented the remote control where you could just kind of push a button from your from your sofa, from your couch. And what, what they noticed was that when a commercial came on, people would change the channel to see what else was on. And because they didn't have to physically get up and walk to the television and change it. So the, the remote control really altered the plots um, because you would have to, before the commercial, you would have to end on a cliffhanger. You would have to end like, what are you, what are you talking about? She, how, she can't be pregnant. She's married to him or what, whatever it is. And then they go to commercial. You're not going to change the channel to find out. You, you gotta, you gotta find out or, or why are you pointing that gun at me? Don't, don't shoot. Oh, that commercial time. And so so the plots of, of, of these shows had to have like two two cliffhangers built into that because they were afraid they were afraid people would just change the channel if it was like, well, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Oh, we don't care what happens tomorrow. I'm gonna change the channel. And that and that has that has been in really going on for about 30 years. Mm. Is what is what what is your act one, you know, your your drama point even in a comedy series it does, any any television show has to end on 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 a cliffhanger of some sort um because they don't want you know when they do the ratings of oh gee a million more people watched in the first half of your show and then it fell off yeah and uh, so that technology has uh, certainly affected storytelling mm. So I, I really want to come on to your current work and your TEDx talk, but just want to 
I want to ask you about, so you've worked on some of my favourite films. Um, you've worked on Rain Man, as you mentioned earlier, Ghost, Castaway, Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can is one of my favourite films of all time. Um, and even The Theory of anything uh, of Everything. What was it like working on sort of them them type of productions and, and how much input did you get to have creative creatively? On, on on all of the productions? Yeah, or, or like yeah, so so was they did you have different experiences with all of them or was it very similar? Uh, usually you usually I would get um very specific notes of of for instance, uh Ray, Rain Man the original draft, he was not uh, autistic. He had he he had a mental disability. Um, you know, he was just mentally handicapped, sl uh, slow, uh, and so he was put in an institution. And, uh, and actually, he wasn't even put in. Inst I, I, I'm trying to think. The very first one, you wouldn't even recognize it, and. Steven Spielberg was the original director, and he said, nobody's going to watch this movie for more than 20 minutes. Like, this this guy's not interesting. I, I mean, it, it was good, but he said, well, it, it's missing something. Anyway, he quit. And then Sidney Pollack came in, and, and he said the same thing, and he quit. So now the two top directors in Hollywood quit. So nobody wanted to do the movie. Well, if they don't like it, um, and we ended up saying, well, what, what, what could he be where he would have to be institutionalized, but would he also be interested? And there was a doctor we found named Dr. Jack Sher, who has since passed away, uh, who specialized in uh, autism and and the autistic savant. And I go, well, here, here, here's a here's a person that you know, needs assisted living, <clears throat> but boy, are they, they're interesting to talk to. And, and there were a couple, one person, one guy, uh, such a guy, his name was Kim Peek, and, and he's who um, Charlie Babbitt, or, or Raymond Babbitt was uh, named after, uh, or, or patterned after. And so now we had a guy that could win, you know, Blackjack in Vegas, and he could remember it was like literally everything. And he was so entertaining; you could have watched him forever. And and so that <coughs> that's how um, that one evolved. But you, usually, it's just we need more humor in the script. That's kind of where I was brought, or some kind of uh, levity. Okay. Um, so if you worked on, and, and they would use like I would, I would do like. I come up with six scenes and they might use one or two. I think, you know, and they, and they would have different writers that, you know, and, and basically the, these, these stories, they seem so cohesive, but they're really just pasted together. It's, it's hard to imagine, but you know, mm -hmm. yeah. if you've ever seen a movie that looks like it's all over the place, that's really how they all are. Just some, some are put together by the director and the editor better than, yeah 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 okay oh, fair enough um so i wanted to talk to you about the tedx talk what you've done the square one at 60 because right. 
the whole basis of this podcast is is to try and find out um, the mentality of successful people and and how they achieve more than more than others in life. As we said before we started, nobody's special, but at the same time, some people seem to achieve special things. Obviously, you had this incredible career. Um, you, you was a, a incredibly well known and well respected uh, scriptwriter, script doctor, um, and then obviously it got to a stage in your life where you wasn't working as much anymore, um, which which prompted the second part of your life, so to speak. So, can you sort of like tell me a little bit about that and and how that all come about? Well. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, they have a committee in the Writers Guild uh, to this day. It's called uh, Writers Over 40, and it's it's um, they try to assist writers to get jobs when, believe it or not, when you're when you hit 40, you're considered over the hill in Hollywood. And that happened to me. And I, I everything dried up. Not only did everything dry up, I ended up getting a divorce and. I had no money and, and it was very embarrassing uh, for me, but even worse, I had this idea and I was completely wrong. I'm, I'm happy to admit, uh, but I was completely wrong that I had to keep up appearances uh, because otherwise nobody would want me if folks, if I said I'm broke, I'm, I'm unemployed, I just got divorced, what, oh, we don't want that guy and, and you know, he, and he's too old. And, and um, so I, I did some, you know, unfor- I'll just tell you, um, I started living uh, the, the, one of the scripts that I wrote or worked on was Catch Me If You Can. I, start, I, had, I had an old bank account. I started taking money from that, not money, checks and putting it in my current bank account, you know, just so I, I, could, I could live for a couple more months my mentality was that I would live until I had my next job and then I could <clears throat> make it all go away. Well, that wasn't the, you know, considering I'm a college graduate, that sounds pretty stupid. And it was, and, you know, and I thought I could play stupid. Like I could just say, oh my God, you know, uh, I put the wrong check in or, or like, who's going to buy it? It sounds idiotic. It's like something maybe a five-year-old would do. But I started, you know, that that's what I did. I eventually got, well, eventually, it wasn't hard to catch me. <laughs> they just like, the bank called me up and they go, you know, you're like $22,000 overdrawn here. And uh, I hate to tell you, you know, when the, the money that you put in came from a closed account, you know, how can you, you know, really pretend that it was, you didn't know it was closed when it was closed like six years ago, but you just happened to have, you know, a pack of the checks from like in a box somewhere. And and they said, you know, by the law, we have to, I thought it would go to a collection agency and then I could like deal with it that way. They said, no, by law, we have to make a police report. And I go, oh, really? I didn't, I should have done my research better. So, so you know, I ended up getting charged with, with that. And uh, then I was placed on house arrest and then they, you know, part of being on house arrest was you have to wear this ankle monitor. Well, I can't go to production meetings with an ankle monitor. That's although I guess now half of Hollywood does it. But this, you know, um, you would have tried a friend. 
So I got these long, you know, cargo pants, you know. And finally, I met this girl. And I made one bad decision after another. Uh, and I took the monitor off um, to go visit her. Well, that's called an escape. I believe it, removing an ankle monitor. So then I got charged with that, and 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 I ended up spending 138 days in jail. Uh, and, and then of course, I'm a, like I'm a writer, so it was like made it made all the papers. Yeah. So so now my worst nightmare has completely come true. I go now I'm totally ruined. And what happens? I get calls from Norman Lear. I get calls from my friend David Kirkpatrick, who or he contacted me. Uh, you should have told me I would have helped. Like now, I'm really you know, feeling what, like, and then they, and then I start getting people in the business who tell me similar stories or or other stories, maybe like um, uh, drug related stories. You know, they got they, they went to a, a rehab clinic, and I was, gee, I didn't know that. And I get this this plethora of horror stories from people in Hollywood. And the reason I didn't know it is because they were doing the same thing. Now, they, they, you know, I don't mean breaking the law necessarily, but but they just everybody wants you know everybody to, around them to think they're doing well because they won't be desirable. And it was it was quite the opposite, and it was based on that exposure that got me the deal to do the current series that I'm doing now. And, you know, I wish I wish I had, not, you know, been more, I guess that's the key to good writing and good living is to just be authentic. Mm. And like I said, don't try to be Ernest Hemingway in your writing. Uh, don't, don't try to write out of your comfort zone and you know you don't have to tell everybody all your problems but don't pretend to be somebody that you're not because really nobody cares yeah you know and you, and, you, know, what care, you know what they care about they what they care about is when when you're a fake when you are pretending to you know because nobody wants you know if, if you're going to be friends with somebody if you're going to certainly work with somebody you don't want to work with somebody that's like giving you this whole song and dance over it's disrespectful there was a there's a woman i just read about it the other day i think it was in the new york times she worked on the tv show gray's anatomy for like 10 years mm -hmm. and it, and and she got the job by saying that she was a cancer survivor and uh, she had gone through all these horrible things. I actually don't really blame her for making up a story to get a job because it's hard to get a job in Hollywood. But she kept it going where I think I think she had appeared on Oprah and you know, she did all this and she worked her way up to be the co-executive producer of the show. Well, it turns out they uh, found out about this and now she's kind of in the position I was in. I, uh, she lost everything. She, she's not working. Uh, I was looking in the Writers, uh, Writers Guild database to see, and I, I don't even see that she has an agent. 
And that's that's pretty bad when you're the exact producer of maybe the top show in, in television. Mm. Uh, I, I, I feel bad. I don't know what her story is, but I feel bad for her that that I, I totally and I think that, you know, she'll end up coming coming back. She's got too many credits. But Hollywood does have that. I don't know if other businesses have the same element, but Hollywood is very self-conscious. And I think it's uh, self-importance for no reason. Mm. You know, it's it's Charlene Charlize Theron uh, when she won her uh, she won an Academy Award. Uh, she gave an interview and she said that she lived in her car for two years and she hadn't told anybody that. And I don't know why she didn't. Um, Joanne or J.K. Rowling uh, was homeless. You know, that seems to be a famous story, her and her daughter and how she got going. So I think my my uh, newfound authenticity has really added to added to my work. I've been doing this show called Over My Dead Body on Amazon Prime. It's a TV series. It's also a podcast. And we go around the world. Uh, to cemeteries of famous dead people and we plug a microphone into their headstone the host sits there and and it's a talk show and we interview them we have a voiceover actor obviously to play the dead person and we never mention that they're dead we just say what are you working on now what 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 are you up to Uh, we get their take on current events uh uh, we spend the maybe the first quarter of the show explaining who they are because believe it or not a lot of people have never heard of, of Mae West or Jimmy Durante or some, some of the famous people um, in our history. Mm. You know. So so I'm doing that. I'm actually, you know, I could do this forever. I'm, I have unlimited number of guests. <laughs> and we've gotten a great response um, to it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate. But I did have, you know, prior to this, I had you know, a number of terrible, difficult years. It's like I started out great. Yeah. And then it kind of, it kind of like all went in the dumpster and then it came back and it's great. So do you think if you didn't have them terrible years, you would be where you are now? Absolutely not. I, I, I hate to say it, but I would not encourage anybody going through terrible years. <laughs> to, to I, I would just... Just, just be authentic and and you know do do the best you can. You know, also from working on a show about famous dead people, it's it's frightening to me to that nobody you know nobody remembers people. Nobody cares. Like I go, wow, if you know, I've been so I was so um, wound up and and so concerned about what people who I, you know, the people I work with, what they think of me. And I go like, they don't even know who, you know, Catherine Hepburn is anymore. You know, they say, in, in, in our country, things have gotten such that they're talking about Abraham Lincoln, take his statue down, things like that. I'm like, if they're going to take his statue down, they certainly don't care what TV show I worked on in, you know, the 1980s. Yeah. So... It's really maybe it's my age as well too, but it's it's put things in perspective. Just you know, do the best work you can, be the best person you can, 
and uh, you know, just just be yourself. There's only there's only one one of each of us, you know. And, yeah. and uh, you know, but but this you know the secret to you know to getting in is is really that one page letter, and and you know, in fact, I, my friend David he has a seminar he teaches. I don't know how many people take it, but I said to him, David. When you were the president of Paramount, if some kid wrote you a letter, did it ever get to you? Did you ever answer it? And he said, every single one. And I said, really? He said, yeah, when I was, when I was in college, I wrote a letter to Walt Disney that said, someday I hope to work for you. And he said, he ended up being, before Paramount, he, said, he ended up being the head of production at Disney. He got in with, from writing the guy a letter. You know, he, goes, does that, he says, "Does that answer your question?" I go, "Yeah, that that." Because like, it's so many times when um, you think people are so <clears throat> unreachable or untouchable in this world that you don't think they're ever going to obviously read or listen or, or know anything about what you do. But I suppose, as you say, because everybody thinks that same way, it's probably they probably don't get as many letters as as what you'd think they would. That's that's exactly right. I mean, I mean. You go, oh, I'm going to write to the, you know, I'm not happy with my hotel room, so I'm going to write to the president of Hilton. Like, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, you'll just be branded as a crazy person because you don't write to the, but, it, you're, and, and based upon that, people, people just assume it'll never get to them. Mm. They'll never read it, you know, and then, and then you find out that, that that's not true, but it's a particular type of letter. You can't, you can't just say I'm young and here's my resume and I'd like to have a job. Please consider it. now that it has to be about them and about your connection to them. Mm. Um, and, and it should be true. You can't just like do a generic letter to a bunch of top executives that you got off a list. But but really give some thought to what it what is it that you most you know what do you love doing and it, and, and if a magic wand could just be waved. Who would you like to work for? Mm. And you come up with a list. And, and, and it'd probably be a short list. You know, it might be six people. And you write six letters. You'll probably get a job. I mean, you really, I, I, I can speak from my experience. And I also, Norman isn't the only one that responded. I got responses one, once. He said, I would love to meet with you uh, and talk to you about a job, but they just canceled our show. <laughs> Things like, okay. However, um, I kept in touch with those people and a, a good number of them I ended up working for. It's supposed so, to see, doesn't it? Not not on the show that I wrote, you know, to them about. Mm. But but a lot of people don't uh, they, you know, they don't do that. They think, I, I don't know what they think. They maybe they'll meet somebody at a party or they'll run in or, you mm. know, they have a fantasy of that. But looking at the, uh, looking at the credits is a great way of knowing who's working on, on what and uh, keeping, you know, keeping in mind what it is you, you really like to do, what your talents are. Mm. For instance, I had a friend uh, my neighbor was the executive producer of Star Trek, the TV series. 
And my friend, <clears throat> I knew him very well. His name is Rick Berman, who produced it. And I had, I had a friend who said, oh, you're, you're friends with Rick Berman, and I, I would love to write for Star Trek. Can you get, get me to meet him? And I said, you would really, my friend had TV writing experience. I, 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 I said, have you ever written anything like this? And he said, no, but I, I just, you know, I would just like, you know, Star Trek, it's a hot show. And so I called Rick like an idiot. I'll never do this again. And, and Rick met with him. And he also sat him down with like the six writers or whatever who was ever, he was like sitting there in the whole staff. And he was telling them some of the ideas, and it was clear, like one of the one one guy said, "Oh, we did that episode last year," or or, yeah, he was just trying to get a job. He didn't know anything that much about the show or mm -hmm. science fiction, you know. And that's you know, so write what you know. Don't, don't don't if you see if you see a show that you think don't don't just try to get a job if it's not if it's not your cup of tea. Mm. You know, if you're a comedy writer, don't try to get a job on a cop show. It's probably you know it's not probably probably oh. the smartest thing. I uh, I made that mistake a little while ago. So when I so <clears throat> my uh, my family have got a really uh, interest in history in in the UK. My granddad um, and there's been have you have you ever heard of Peaky Blinders? in the uk so so darby sabini in peaky blinders is my granddad in real life oh wow uh, but obviously he's he's long gone he he passed away well before i was born um but peaky blinders didn't actually portray him the way the family was in real life so um i've been talking to uh netflix and uh mgm about a tv series where i want to create telling the true story of, of the family so I wrote three episodes myself. I've actually, so I spoke to uh, Rob Wise. I don't know if you know Rob. Um, I spoke to Rob and Rob wants to get involved um, in, in the, the production, in the, the writing as well. But I thought I'm going to write three episodes myself. I got a really good response. So I was like, oh, this is brilliant. And I thought of a good comedy. So I was like, well, that's a drama, but surely I can write, if I can write, I can write anything. I started writing this drama and honestly, Steve, it was the worst, oh, sorry, this comedy, it was the worst, unfunniest script I've ever written in my life. And wow. I, I thought, I, I kind of knew I wasn't that funny in the first place, but for some reason I thought I could write it. I was like, right, never again. I'm only ever going to write what I know from there on. <laughs> right. but, that is, that's funny. <laughs> that. but, so um, I've, done, I've done that too. I mean, I, you, you, you look at what's selling and you go, well, I can do this. And then you start to do it, and yeah, it's just, uh, you probably could do it, maybe with enough practice, you know. Maybe. However, you know, however there are certain people lean towards certain things. I've always had a sense of humor. My parents have a sense of humor, except when I got in all that trouble, they didn't have that. But, um, and I, I gravitated, I used to watch, there's a show here in the States uh, it was called in the early 60s called the Dick Van Dyke Show. And the show was about a group of people that sit around, they lay on a couch, they sit in a reclining chair, they're writers, and they're writing for a show called the Alan Brady Show, a fictional show. And I thought, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I said, I want to be one of those guys in that room snowballing ideas. What, you know, what, what can we have them do now? You know, and I, uh, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I've had, you know, 40 years um, in the Writers Guild, 40 years in the business 
um, doing that. I, I have no intention of retiring. I, I can't imagine like what I would do each day of my life if I weren't working on something, whether I'm getting paid for it or not, or well or not. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, is if you find something you love, you know, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of people want to get into the entertainment business because they think it's glamorous. They, they think you're going to make a zillion dollars. But, you know, if you average your income over the, the 40 years, I, I would have done better, you know, as a school teacher. <laughs> I, I, I really think. But I've, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, really enjoyed this. You know, and I, I love seeing people who write something and get their work produced and, and the look on their face, uh, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier. It's like, so isn't this like, you know, surreal? Yeah. It's like, it's like something that's in your mind uh, that that now like people are saying your lines. Yeah. And, and a lot of people think that they don't understand that. They just think that the actors make it up as they're going along. Especially comedians, if they're like a sitcom, they go, oh, they're ad-libbing. Uh, they're not ad-libbing. Sometimes they are. But but you usually, um, almost always, it's it's from the script. Mm. So what what gives you your drive to to continue working in obviously such a hard industry? And, and what was your mentality day to day when you were first starting out to, to carry on trying to progress? What I do uh, pretty much every day, if, if, if I get like a, the thought that, come, oh, this isn't funny or I don't know, will this, anybody like this, that kind of thing. I just go, well, they always have before. <laughs> it's like, you know, I just finished a, an episode of, with Mark Twain. We interviewed Mark Twain at his cemetery, which is very funny. And I think... <laughs> And now I'm working on one with a sportscaster, Howard Cosell. The next after that is Walter Cronkite. He was a famous um, newscaster here in America. And then uh, the Jimmy Stewart, uh, the, those are our next episodes. <clears throat> and I just look at my um, track record of doing these and I go, well, what makes me think that this next one's gonna suck if if the last three were funny, like, like, why, why do I have that thought? Mm. You know, and I, and I, I think because it's a fear that all artists have, I'm, I'm just taking a guess, but it, it you know, what, what normal person wakes up and go, oh, my work today, if you're an accountant and you're doing somebody's tax return, do you wake up in the morning and go, wow, I'm going to screw this thing up good today. This guy's going to be in so much trouble. Like or our car mechanic, you know, you, you go in there, you know, you're going to replace a transmission. Oh, I'll bet you I do this wrong. This guy's this thing's going to blow up when he drives away. Like nobody is. It's just like in show business. You just think you stink. Like you're a fake. You're no good. But, I, you know. I don't know. Does a doctor think like, oh, maybe I'll kill a person today. I better, maybe I shouldn't I go, go to work. I, I've, I've never heard of, of a profession that had the self-doubt. No, you're right. That, 
I suppose like there's something there's some there's something in our minds that go, oh, my script sucks, and everybody's gonna hate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you do. Even well. if you've had, if you've had success, like, like the last, you know, even if the last one was good, you could just have won an award. It doesn't you, mm. you know, just it, it, it's just this business. Yeah. yeah that, as, as far as I know, I, I even do it on the podcast as well. I've I've, I've released. <laughs> I've released five, but I filmed about twelve or thirteen now, um, trying to get a backlog. And before every podcast, I say to my missus, oh, "I'm really nervous about this one." She goes, "Why?" Well, I go, "Well, if it doesn't go well." She's like, "Yeah, but right. you you got good reception for all the others." I'm like, "Yeah, I know, but what if I say the wrong thing, or what if the guests don't don't want to answer the questions, or something like that?" And you know, I think it's anything creative because it's come from the depths of your imagination. It's so. Right scary putting it out there that you, you do you you worry about it all the time but but then that might make that might be the reason why it becomes good because you are worrying and, and you push yourself to make it better so you don't worry when you're doing it right i i think i think you're you're exactly right um because i've had experiences with people they like they never wrote anything before they 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 wrote something the first draft of something uh, just once and, and now they're ready to to get their academy award and like and if you tell them it needs work or they ask you you know what do you think and you you try to help them then they get mad at you because they think it's great mm. so anybody that writes something quickly and thinks it's great it's not a real writer no because in order to be a real writer you have to be as miserable as possible and think everything you write stinks. In fact, Ernest Hemingway, I quote him a lot. He said the first draft of, this is his quote, the first draft of anything is shit. That's what he said. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway says this. Yeah. John, John Steinbeck wrote The Grapes of Wrath. It took him four years. And when he was done, he thought it was so horrible that he threw it in the trash. And his wife, Ellen, took it out of the trash, sent it to Scribner's Publishers in New York, his, his publisher, and it became a classic. But he didn't, he thought it was, he threw it out. And it's like, if John Steinbeck and Ernest Hemingway say this, um, Yeah, you've got and, a chance. You know, yeah, I have a chance, yeah. I, I guess. Perhaps my comment is quite funny. You're right, it really does. You, you do question yourself because you want it to be good. Yeah, 100%. And, and everything I do creatively, creatively as well, I always it's think... The thing that, yeah, it's the thing that makes... Well, it's the thing that means the most to you is your art. And you want it to be as good as possible. Yeah, 100%. And everything I do creatively, I send it to my closest people and tell them to tell me what's wrong with it. So I don't want to hear what's right of it. Tell me what's wrong with it. And then let them let them sort of say if, if there's not a lot they can come back with then i know it's all right if there's a lot they can come back with i know i've got a lot more work to do on that particular thing um that's a quite a good process it's, it's soul destroying <laughs> but in the in the long run it's a good process because i can always make sure that i get it there in the end yeah that that is that's that's the uh... I don't even I don't even know what to say. I, I, I just feel I feel like um you, you hit the nail on the head with the 
yeah with the self-doubt they still have me thinking about the self-doubt and yeah and why, why are we going through what we go through i mean you probably when you launched your your podcast you're probably like you said you worry about gee will it be good today and you you know you've done it a number of times before mm-hmm. and it's always good thank you but, but you always i maybe you just don't want to let your guard down yeah you want to just keep you know, i, I think best. I think, and you could probably agree with this, I think life has a funny way of humbling you. I think as soon as you think you're on top, life can humble you really quick. So I try and stay no ego and grounded as much as possible so I don't get humbled. <laughs> right. You know, that, you know, especially me. I got, I got humble, you know, humbled pretty well. But um, um, I also think that makes that that uh, affects people better when when you know your characters get humble yeah. or, or when you're authentic in your work people really you know relate to that i notice like on facebook if you if you get a job and 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 you post it in front of your friends people will say congratulations or oh that's great or whatever but you know what gets the most response when you put pictures of your grandchildren or your <laughs> or your pet Mm. Like people love that, you know, I, I don't, you know, you know, Facebook can be a, a place where you brag about your accomplishments. So then you get like 4,000 people talking about their latest book or, or the trip they went on, or, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it can bring out the worst in people. You try to impress people, mm. you know? but when you put down well, you put down something that everyone can relate to, like, oh, my 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 daughter got married or my daughter had a baby or something. It's like, you know, and I, I notice what, what people respond to and they respond to things that we all have in common. Yeah. Um, either, you know, God forbid somebody dies, uh, you know, uh, you know, old people. My parents are going to be married 70 years wow. in, in June. Just wait. Uh, I'll, I'll put that on Facebook. That'll probably get the most response ever. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, could win, I could win an Oscar tomorrow and it wouldn't get the response that a 70th anniversary would. That's true. That's true. Um, wanted to quickly go back onto the, uh, the series you're doing at the moment over my dead body. So when you're creating the scripts for that, do you have to do a lot of research on the person to obviously get the the way they talk, uh, their attitude, their mindset, obviously to try and make it as authentic as possible, or is it sort of more just a you you have that sort of uh, you can play about with it because it's a more of a creative thing than not real life. Are, are you talking about like for episodic series or? Yeah. Okay, well that that's my trick. Um, I actually talked about it in a podcast. Um, before, and when I when I got out to Hollywood, there was a famous writer, David Lloyd, who since passed away, and he said, "I'm going to teach you a secret, and nobody does it." So now all of the people listening to your podcast will know how to write a sitcom. <laughs> he said, "When you look at a movie, you should be able to turn the sound off, and you should be able to tell what happens in the story because it's a visual medium." To, however, television is the opposite of that. It's actually more like radio. He said, you should be able to, to turn the picture off. And just from listening, you should know what's going on uh, you know, in, in the show. And he said, uh, uh, 
when you read a script, when a person writes a script for, let's say, their favorite show, so you pick a show, you've watched it a zillion times, so you have a funny idea for the show, and you and you and you're trying to break into the business, so you want to write like a spec script to show that you can write an episode of it. So you write the episode and it sounds great to you. You read it and go, oh, I'm really happy with this. Because in your mind, you're hearing the characters say the words that you wrote because you know the way they sound like from watching the show. You're picturing them do it. But to the producer, chances are, especially if you're new, all the characters sound the same. It's just that you're hearing their voice because you're picturing it. But to somebody else, they 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 sound the same. The way to get in, uh, this is this is my second secret. The first one was the letter writing. The second secret is what you do is you make an audio recording of an episode of a show you want to write for, just an audio recording, and you put a set of headphones on and you walk away or you walk around for you know a week and you listen to the thing about two hundred times. And this thing is drilled into your head the way that, that then you can sit down and you can write these characters talking about the weather. You can write them talking about it and it will sound exactly like them. Mm. And so what you do at that point, you have an idea for an episode, you write it and you, you, you get, and if you can get somebody there on the show to read it, they'll go, oh my God, you know, whether they want to do that particular story or not. <clears throat> They'll say, oh, my God, this, this person can really write these. This is unbelievable. You'll probably get a job. And if it's not on that show, it'll be somewhere else because your dialogue is so spot on. Mm. And what happens is if you watch the show 100 times, you're still seeing it. You just have to hear it. And, 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 and it's the, that's how you get the dialogue. And I have never met a person ever in 40 years that's done that. But my friend, David Lloyd, who wrote for all these old Mary Tyler Moore and Cheers, uh, he said <coughs> that that's how you learn a show. Okay. So I, I would recommend anybody, if you wanna, if you wanna you know, write for a series, just make an audio recording or of one or two episodes and, and listen to it a, a million times and you'll, you know, you'll be able to write them um, accurately. So in, in terms of Over My Dead Body, how do you, you do the, a lot of research in, in obviously your characters to, to make sure that's authentic? Yes, well, well, when you, when you say research, if it's for a TV show, the characters are already established. So, so for, say, say you're interviewing, um, say, are you Mark Twain. From, from my show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say you're interviewing Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain. Do you... Oh, unbelievable amount of research. What would, I didn't know it would be like that. But what I do, you know, I was just going to do a, a question and answer show. And I go, well, I don't really know anything about these people. So I would look them up online. I would also buy a biography of them and read that, or at least read a lot of it. And I would come up with stuff that a lot of times people didn't even know, you know, that they're not, not known for. 
And uh, what ended up happening between that and, and my camera crew, the crew said, gee, we never heard of Mae West. We, we never heard of, uh, you know, they heard of Richard Nixon, but they didn't know much about him, uh, you know, because they're, th they're all 30 years old. And I, I go, well, now I have to explain who these people are. So it became from comedy. Now it's uh, Amazon has listed it as education as well as comedy. And we, we, we spend about a quarter to a third of the episode educating people on who, who they are. So when, I, you know, I've had people say, I never knew this much, you know, this much stuff about Mark Twain. I didn't know that he, he was also an inventor. I didn't know about Mae West. Um, you know, we, we've done uh, Tupac Shakur, uh, Phyllis Stiller. So yeah, that that is definitely uh, really doubled the amount of work. But it's a lot of fun to do the research. Mm. And, and um, without it, we would we would have no way. I would I wouldn't even know what to write. Mm. It's a, you know, it's a talk show. It's the same thing. As, it's really put together the same as any other talk show. You do your research, you talk a little about what they've done in the past, and then then they, then you make up the comedy. Then it's like, well, what are you work? What are you working on now? Well, I don't know. They're dead. You, know, you can say anything you want. <laughs> uh, you talk about world events. What what you know? If, if you could live anywhere, where you just make up, where would you live? Mm. Uh, you know, where, you know, what did you have to eat yesterday? <laughs> you know? So really. You know, you know, and then we get some callers. I mean, the callers will call in and they'll they'll ask questions. Some of them will every once in a while we get an irate caller. And they get into an argument. <laughs> so it's very Yeah, you know, and they're about tw twenty to thirty minutes long each of the episodes. Have you ever done one with somebody where their family member has reached out to you and and sort of said they've watched it, if they've liked it or anything like that? I've had uh not yet. Um, I'm trying to think. You don't... Robert Robert Kardashian. Yeah. We haven't heard from anybody. It's it's actually they're public figures. They're dead, and it's a parody. Yeah. So you can't say like you have slandered my uh, my grandfather because uh, because you know he said this and this and no. We're looking at his tombstone. There's a speaker attached to it. Nobody thinks it's your grandfather. Okay, we're at the cemetery. <laughs> I mean, we've worked very hard to, you know, but there, there are some laws. It's called post-mortem rights of publicity, and some, like you can't market a Julia Child cookbook with her recipes. Uh, that, that you can't do. But you can, you know, Julia Child was cremated. We can, you know, attach a microphone to an urn and and ask her, you know about her life. I, nobody will ever mistake that <laughs> not really Julia Child. I mean, you would have to have a hard time making a claim yeah. like that. And Saturday Night Live does that all the time. They put people on uh, living or dead, you know, and they do comedy, mm. as long as it's clearly, clearly comedy. Mm. And we do have an education uh, component yeah. to it. Has anybody, I, I mean, I've had a, wow. That's a good question. You know, I have not had any direct member of a family um, contact me. Uh, we were going to do Joan Rivers, mm. and we can do that, and it would be funny, 
But I'll bet you her daughter would contact. He, she would either love it or hate it. Yeah. So I haven't, I haven't, uh, we, we haven't done that yet. I might, I might contact her to see what she has to say. Yeah. Um, so your TEDx talk, uh, Square One at 60, obviously you went into it and, and told us about what happened in your past and that, but what what prompted that TEDx talk? Was that something that you you done yourself or did you get approached to do that? Like, How does that come about? I, I was approached um, by a, TED, a TEDx organizer and uh, I don't know, a few a few years ago and said, would you do a uh, a talk about your show? They, they saw my show. And I said to them, well, I, I would be happy to do that. Um, I said, but I think I should tell you that, you know, more about my life, not just about, about the show. And, I, you know, I was afraid that they'd, they'd realized I'd gotten into trouble in the past and then that I would be embarrassed and all that. I just told them. And about a month later, I heard from them and they said, like, they wanted me more because of it. And this, again, was like, I was worried what people would think. And now it made me more attractive. And I go, oh, now I got to do a whole thing. And then and then I didn't hear anything for a while. Then the pandemic hit. And, uh, you know, that was that. And in 2021, like in the spring, I I, I got contacted and they said, Okay, we're we're ready for you know you to do this thing in the summer and and I go wow they want to so then I had to write this write this uh, talk and I remember walking around a shopping mall I was just doing pay, pacing around this mall thinking what am I going to do like what and somehow it hit me like well they want me to do the show and I started the show when I was sixty. So, you know, just like I, like I was starting over. And I thought, well, I'll call it Square One at 60, which I, my son told me was a catchy name. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's how it started. And then I, I probably wrote that thing 20 times. I mean, I had thrown in, it, it, when I read it, it was about, you're supposed to go up to 18 minutes and that was like 22 minutes. So I cut it, cut it, cut it. And eventually, I just started cutting even more. It ended up being 14 minutes and 10 seconds, way under. But I got to the point, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I was extremely nervous about doing a TEDx talk. And then after it came out, I got a lot of good response. But I didn't even put it on my own Facebook page for about six months. So I was afraid I'd start getting unfriended by people. I go, oh, I didn't know this, like the few, you know, you know. And then finally, I, a friend of mine saw it and put it on my own thing. And I got all this, this great um, response from it. I, I, you know, I still get contacted by people. So I just saw your TEDx talk, you know, that took a lot of guts to do. And um and boy, I can really relate. Like, like, and here's what happened to me, and you know, whatever. And so it's it's been a very positive uh, experience. I think it's great. I think it was really good because 
it just shows you no matter no matter what's going on in your life, things can always go wrong. But you can always turn it back round again and, and dust yourself off and and carry on. And I think you're a great example of that. You was flying high, things went wrong, and now look at you. You're you're back on top. You're doing a passion project, what you absolutely love, doing really well doing it. And yeah, I, I thought I thought it was brilliant. It really motivated me when I listened to it. Well, a lot of people, like Julia Child said, she was one of the people we did our, an episode on. She said that you can take the same ingredients and depending how you bake it, you come up with a different a different dessert. And she says, like I think the souffle, she says, if, you fa- if it falls, you just mix it up, you throw in some ice cream and you call it something else. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're all big on, we're very, we think in a very linear manner. Uh, we think like you're you're as good as where you are right now, and 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 we kind of dismiss our past accomplishments. And I I just thought, well, what if you just mix? It's all life is just a mixed bag. It's like, it's like if you were to make a list of the things you've done in your life, both good and and bad, you know, th- things you're proud of, things you're ashamed of, and put them on a list. People would say, well, you shouldn't have done this, but oh my God, look at this, and I, you know. If you if you just took them out of order, and, and you know that you end up with this melting pot of your own life, and I, I I think it's you know we put in we put in a lot of uh, put a lot of focus on um, where where we are right now, and you know add to that what I've learned from doing my show, which is nobody even will remember us except for maybe like a couple generations of oh yeah that was my grandfather. I, I think we're we're too hard on ourselves, and and like you said, as artists, we're really hard on ourselves. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, uh, so I'm, I'm I think it was it was cathartic for me. I, I'll never forget the day I did it. I showed. I go. Oh, that that was another perfect example. Oh, I'm gonna suck. Everybody's gonna hate it. I'm gonna forget everything. You know. Like, I, why, why do I do this to myself? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, I'm always I'll, never, I'll never do this again. <laughs> no. But it, it was cathartic for me. I think it, it was helpful. Um, I got responses from people that watch TED Talks a lot. Like, this is one of the best I've seen, things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, that was, I think that was the best response I ever got to anything I did in my life was that TED Talk. Really, and that and, and that was you most nervous about probably. Yeah, the thing I I thought would maybe be the worst. <laughs> so. What's the what's the most challenging pro, uh, project you've worked on? The, the most what? Challenging project you've worked on. Um. Wow. A writing writing a a pilot about Norman Lear's father. Norman Lear's father. Uh, when Norman was nine, between the ages of nine and 13, his father committed fraud and went to jail. And he didn't tell anybody about it for like 50 years. And he told me, and this is ironic, and he told me about it when he hired me. And he wanted to do a comedy about a lovable con man. And, and, and it was based on his dad in Connecticut. And we called it Pop. And we shot it. It was a Charles Durning and B. Arthur were the were the leads. It was a, a pilot for NBC. They did not pick it up, but um, 
Norman would tell me, here's why it was challenging. Norman would tell me about his dad. And he goes, but he's a lovable guy. And But everything he told me about his dad, I go, what a slime ball. How am I going to make this guy funny? And he goes, but Norman loved his dad. So he thought like, well, this has got to be funny. I'm like, I'm thinking, no one is ever going to think this is funny. And he was telling me, you got to do it just like this, because this is, we want it to be accurate. And, and I'm thinking, if you want to make it accurate, people are going to hate this guy. Yeah. So... I had to come up with a way where, where he had some endearing qualities, you know, and I'm writing about my boss's father, the guy that gave me my big break, who's a, a television legend, you know, and he's, he's, he's anointed me with this job of, of working with him about his, like the most personal thing. And, and, and yeah. I don't want to insult him and say, your, your father was like terrible. Yeah, that could have easily so gone I would, wrong. I would, I would rate that at the top. Yeah. Of, uh, and what was one of your, your most favorite projects you've worked on? Oh, catch, catch Me If You Can, the rewrite of that. That was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I love that. I love that, that film. That was absolutely. And, and in fact, I worked on it before. Uh, back in the 80s when it was owned by a producer named Hall Bartlett. Uh, he had bought the rights to the book. So this is before Steven Spielberg. This is before any of the people that, that were involved in it. Uh, but, but it's the same story, uh, essentially. Um, I, I, yeah, I, 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 and then, and, you know, it didn't get made. That book came out, uh, that, that did not get made for, you know, 20, 20 years mm. I, I, I was surprised that they that they did it and i thought they did a, a wonderful job with it yeah yeah i did tom, tom, tom hanks and and leonardo dicaprio were just and christopher walken they were all great yeah yeah it's, it's definitely uh, it's definitely one of my favorite movies so dicaprio is one of my favorite actors obviously he's, he's a legend um tom hanks one of my favorite actors as well but i think it's the the just, just the like how the main like Frank Abengal just done what he wanted in life. It just it was like unapologetic about just doing what he wanted, but he was still a lovable character. He, he kind of fell into it. Well, here's here's something not to uh, dispel your uh, your love for the movie. It was a great movie, but in the last few years, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Frank Abengal, it turns out that. I, I didn't know it either. 99% of that story he made up. He never flew in the cockpit of an airplane. <laughs> the time that he said he did all his adventures, he was actually incarcerated in a jail in New York uh, as a juvenile for like four years. All you have to do is, is Google that. Uh -huh. You will be blown away about... Yeah. But he, he only got arrested once in France. He was arrested. There's mug shots of him. Uh, he didn't impersonate a doctor, a lawyer. He never took the bar exam. He made up this entire story. He did get in trouble. And then he made up this. He never worked for the FBI. He never, he, that, he, he didn't get released to work for the FBI. He made up the story. He got on a TV show called To Tell the Truth believe it or not. And then he got on The Tonight Show. And based upon that, he got a book deal 
And he's trying to say that somebody else wrote, the, you know, made it up or whatever. But there's a picture of him and a video out there, even Google that hired him to do a talk in 2017, five years ago, put a disclaimer on the talk. They left it up, but they put a disclaimer saying that we don't vouch for the validity of anything. And, and what gives him credibility is that Spielberg made it into the movie. And in a way, it's ironic. You have to, I, I mean, you really have to do, now he no longer does talks or interviews. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> And I, I had a, a conversation with, with with a guy about this, and he started to argue with me. He goes, "Oh, this cannot be true," and I said, "I, I said that's what I thought." And, and but but it's very well detailed. When you his... when you think about it, though, it's ironic. He made a film about him being a prolific con artist, and by doing that, he's right. actually conned everybody by making everyone think he was right. a con artist. <laughs> right. It's it's un it's unbelievable. Yes, yeah. So since you brought it up. I almost wasn't going to say anything, but it is uh, e easy to verify what I just said. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I believe you. Still a great film, though. <laughs> it, it, oh no, it's a great film and it's a great story. And uh, his talk—if you look at his talk from 2017—it's compelling. You're like on the edge of your seat. He's the best ever. <laughs> Um, right, so I'm uh, I'm gonna wrap this up now, Stephen. So I thank you for your time. But I ask all of my guests uh, the same question. I always ask because I'm I'm obsessed with films. So I always try and understand: um, is it the films what the films we watch when we're younger? Is that what makes us into the people we become when we're older, or do we get drawn into them films because we're always this way inclined? So, what are your three favorite films of all time? The films that we see when, well, when we're younger, my three favorite films, I'll bet you get this same answer a lot, at least from people you, you would interview in the United States, um, Casablanca. It's a ridiculous film. <laughs> Looks like it was shot like, like in a high school auditorium, but it's such a great, I just love it. It, it, it takes you into another world and it's very simple. And I just love Casablanca. I love The Wizard of Oz uh, as well. And uh, those two, they're kind of, and it's a wonderful life. But I put them in a separate category. As far as more modern films, uh, I like Midnight Cowboy and, and The Graduate. And I really love the movie with uh, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones called The Fugitive. Okay, I don't know if you've seen The Fugitive, where it was based on an old TV series, but where where they chase this guy around and he tries to prove he's innocent. He was a, um, escaped. He was like on his way to death row. It's a great a great movie, and and a bonus movie would be Witness, also with Harrison Ford, mm. um, where he plays a cop who's hiding out in an Amish farm. Um, oh, there's a lot of movies. Tootsie is a great movie too. Yeah. With Dustin Hoffman. Perfect. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Um, I'd love to get you back on another time as well. Um, but yeah, I really, really appreciate this. It's so insightful for me. Um, yeah, great chat. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, I really appreciate this and look forward to 
to listening to it and telling everybody about your podcast. Thank you very much. Um, just before we go, Stephen, so I bring out a monthly uh, monthly online publication with the podcast. So it's a rundown of all the guests I have that month. Um, and it's just like a quick fire questions, a bit more about like them, where to find them, what they're working on now. Um, and it just makes it like a bit more of a, uh, you people can understand the person behind the, the podcast, basically. Um, are you okay for me to send you over some quick fire questions so I can put you in? The, sure. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, what's the best way to email you or, or text you? Email them to me and then I'll answer Perfect. all of the questions. Thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate that. All right. Well, I will keep in touch. Definitely. 100%. And, uh, and uh, you have a great day and a great holiday. You too. Thank you very much. Have a new year. Good new year as well. Bye bye. Okay.